0: Welcome to the Future of Growth podcast with Agrify. Here, we'll be exploring all things related to cannabis, ag tech, controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, cultivation science, industry trends, and more. Informed by science and driven by data, episodes will enlighten our audience through open dialogue with thought leaders, innovators, and industry disruptors who are forging the future of growth. Join our host, David Kessler chief science officer at Agrify, as he dives into the many facets that cannabis and agriculture have to offer. Stay connected with Agrify by joining us on all platforms at Agrify Corp. And by visiting our website, www.agrify.com. Sit tight for another episode of the future of growth coming at you now.
1: Welcome to the Future of Growth. I'm David Kessler, the Chief Science Officer at Agrify, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ethan Russo, a legend and recently described luminary in the cannabis industry. Dr. Russo is a specialist in child neurology and a noted expert in the endocannabinoid system. Also, in addition to your lengthy list of credits, Uh, You are also the director or were the director of research and development at the International Cannabis and Cannabinoid Institute. Thank you so much for making the time to join me and my listeners today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Dr. Russo, Ethan, if I may, you really need no introduction. You are quite a figure in the industry as well. And when it comes to the science behind the cannabinoids, the endocannabinoid system, Uh, really one of the foremost in the in the world with that how did you get involved with cannabis Uh, a lot of doctors were quite slow to get on that train and you seem to have joined on fairly early well relatively speaking but keep
2: in mind there were pioneers uh like Dr. Doctors Grinspoon and Micaria uh, uh Hergen rather for that matter before me but um it was uh sort of a a slow evolution, getting back to my roots, as it were, as uh, someone who was interested in foraging and uh, use of herbs in teen years. Uh, But I had the standard and doctrination in medical pharmacology uh, in school. But when I was in practice for seven years, circa 1990, um, it really seemed to me that I was giving increasingly toxic drugs to my patients with less and less benefit. And I turned back at that point to an interest in medicinal plants. Um, And this really uh, started with ethnobotanical studies, looking at what indigenous people were using for neurologic conditions, particularly headache. Um, That led me to the rainforest in Peru uh, for two trips, uh, including a three-month sabbatical uh, in the Amazon in 1995. When I came back, it was 1996, Prop 215 happened in California, and I quickly became embroiled in the cannabis controversy. Um, But even by that point, I was well aware of the fact that many of my patients, particularly those with multiple sclerosis, were using cannabis to advantage. Um, Once I started really delving into it, um, the science behind cannabis therapeutics, as well as Uh, The recently discovered endocannabinoid system, I was really hooked by its intricacy and its possibilities. Uh, The potential there was limitless, it seemed. And that eventually led to, uh, uh, well, what uh, became my full-time job eventually uh, with GW Pharmaceuticals and subsequently.
1: And that was in the development of uh, Sativex and what was the other uh, product that you, Epidialox, of course. And that led to GW's more recent uh, purchase or uh, by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I mean, that is really the two drugs that put them on the map. Exactly.
2: But what people may not understand is uh, that there was a really amazing pipeline behind that of other possibilities. Um, regarding uh, so-called minor cannabinoids, uh, but have never really gotten the attention or publicity uh, that they really deserve in terms of their medical potential.
1: Absolutely. And when we look at phytochemicals produced by cannabis, I mean, the latest number I saw in a research paper this year was 545 different chemical metabolites. Do you think we'll continue to unearth more?
2: Well, there sure could. Could be with better analytical techniques, but with cannabinoids, it uh, breaks down this way. There are at least 150 that the plant makes. There may be others that appear as artifacts of analysis. You know, when you start heating things, they change. Um, but we really know a good bit uh, of the pharmacology of only about a dozen of the phytocannabinoids in cannabis. But what we know there is already quite uh, dramatic in terms of the therapeutic possibilities. Um, So just like there's been a CBD craze, I think we're beginning now a phase of a cannabigerol CBG craze. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's a bit of a Delta-8 craze. There will be a THCV craze. Um, acid cannabinoids craze. I'm not sure when they're going to hit their stride, but um, this is all likely going to happen.
1: I definitely have heard a lot of clamor around THCV. CBG has already been moved on as one of the more productive and valuable crops for a lot of the hemp farmers looking to monetize their biomass. And so we we absolutely will see a push towards some of these lesser known minor cannabinoids. Um, But when it comes to doing research on these cannabinoids here in the US, there's some significant hurdles in our way. Can you go into that a little bit? I mean, we lost out a lot of tax revenue by not being able to support companies like GW Pharma.
2: Well. Uh, I mean, we could spend many hours on this. It's, it's one of my pet peeves, actually. It's been the bane of my existence for 25 years and is a convenient explanation for why I've spent a bulk of the last generation working for foreign companies. It is not possible in this country to do genuine clinical research with domestically originating material. Everything has to come through the NIDA Monopoly. And it's material that's not standardized, uh, means that it's not consistent. If you had used it and had a good result, you would not be guaranteed of having the same material again. And make no mistake, this is by design. Uh, As I've said before, this is a system that was designed to fail. And in that, it succeeded very well. But (laughs) let's give a current example. Um, Uh, as we said, uh, there's a lot of excitement now about cannabigerol, but what does it really do? Well, we aim to answer that and we have just submitted a journal article that's the largest study of CBG in humans. Now, unfortunately, it's just a survey study because uh, that's all that's really possible. But we had 127 people who are using material, they were only allowed into the survey if their material was greater than 50% CBG. So not anything with trace material. And we queried them about their use habits, why they used it, their success in treating various conditions and comparisons to conventional drugs. And the results are pretty dramatic. I'll just say in general that uh, many people use this successfully to treat pain anxiety uh, depression uh, and a variety of other medical conditions and most instances people thought it was very helpful on uh, most instances uh, better than conventional medicines that they'd used for the same problems so we're hoping that that will be published and available but it is this kind of evidence, if you will, what the government calls anecdotal, that may provide the ammunition we have to go back uh, to the FDA and say, okay, we have at least this much evidence that people are using this, number one, that they're not running into a lot of side effects or withdrawal, uh, because we queried for that as well. we need your permission to do a formal randomized controlled trial of this material. Um, without some evidence of human use, you don't get that. And uh have to go through a lot of preliminaries with animal studies, uh, et cetera, which are going to, for better or worse, need to happen at some point, formal toxicology studies. but. Um, uh, the same scenario was gone through with CBD not not that many years ago. Uh, my friend and colleague, Donald Abrams, had a study of cannabidiol he wanted to do. And the first thing they said was, well, how do you know people are are using this? Um, so he had to provide evidence that people were smoking or vaporizing CBD uh, like that hadn't happened for thousands of years. <laughs> um, uh, But eventually, the case was made, and he was able to do his study.
1: Now, are you worried that this very system that you describe as set up to fail is limiting you or the potential participants in a study like this? Because instead of being able to have a control group that might not be a CBD user or a CBG user, consumer, uh, you have to go with people that are already, by extension, utilizing those chemical compounds. And does that have any bias to the study itself? Yeah, it
2: does. I mean, if we look at the studies done on cannabis in the US, a lot of them had a stipulation that people had to be previous cannabis users. Well, um, I guess that could avoid problems. But immediately, You've uh, ensured that you couldn't generalize the findings to uh, the whole population because only half of people have ever tried cannabis. Um, so, you know, you're immediately reducing the validity of the results. Um, it, the associated bureaucracy with doing this kind of studies is stunning. Um, people should have no illusions about it or the difficulties involved. Now, in contrast, I can tell you, that in the Sativex and Epidiolex development programs, there were over 100 clinical trial sites in the US of A uh, where this work was undertaken. But the amount of work that went into each one, setting it up so that they had a locked refrigerator in a locked area Mm -hmm. um, with limited access and full accounting, uh, inspections by the DEA, it's uh, incredible what people have to go through. But the point being that we could do that with cannabis from a foreign source. You cannot do that with cannabis from a domestic source. So, what's wrong with this picture? So Is the government saying that we're not going to engage in cannabis research or commerce, uh, but we'll allow it if it comes from somebody else?
1: That's crazy. It really is. And again, the system is designed to make it difficult, to make it challenging, to prevent research from moving forward. Even the necessary work with U.S. uh, universities is really hampered because of the way the government doles out uh, grant money if they are to decide to work on cannabis or cannabis-derived products they risk all of their funding. How has that impacted your research? Uh,
2: Well, it makes it impossible to do anything in American universities, um, or darn near so. Um, You know, what typically happens is uh, a professor will uh, decide that they want to do some kind of cannabis-based research. They get far into it, and then it goes to the university council, and uh, he squelches it. Again, um, there is not a recorded instance of a university losing federal funding in general for involvement in cannabis research, but it's simply the threat that has kept uh, all of this at at bay. Um, I've been down this road more times than I can count. Um, Again, uh, why we do things abroad rather than (laughs) domestically.
1: It's really unfortunate. I would love to see some of the research coming forth. Now, I know that the Farm Bill has allowed a lot of researchers to start working with hemp, which is really just an artificial limitation on the chemical concentration of THC put on by the government. You've written uh, on this subject matter, I would say, extensively, and and argued that maybe we should reevaluate that limitation of 0.3% and increase it. Can you talk just a high level of of what that would mean? Yeah, well, uh,
2: first of all, it's a made up number. Um, Generally speaking, uh, hemp uh, could be defined um, as material with um, less 1% or less THC because that's the point at which uh, somebody smoking it will or will not uh, become high. So uh, below 1% it's usually not fruitful for people to try to get high using it. Um, But beyond that, even with the farm bill, let me give you an example. This is real life example. Uh, We were working with a company that was making supplements uh, that had CBD in them. They wanted to do a simple study in which um, we would monitor people's sleep uh, over several days two nights not doing anything different, and then three nights with the CBD supplement. We tried to put this through an institutional review board, uh, meaning an ethics committee, which is a uh, sine quite known of doing research on people. And they said, no way, no how, you need an investigational new drug application through the FDA to do this. And the reason was because we had a control, uh, the people themselves not taking anything on the two nights. If we want, wanted to just uh, look at the material on its own, anyway, it's a fine point, but it's it's scientifically indefensible. Uh, but that's the way it is. Um, so people should have no illusions about uh, Well, Well, it's, it's just commentary on why there is so little quality research. Um, on cannabis in this country. Um, Everything that's been done decently has come from elsewhere.
1: It really is unfortunate. I'm thrilled and really appreciate all of the research being done globally. But the fact that we in the United States can't contribute to that body of knowledge uh, is really disheartening and something that I hope will be changing in the very near future. Um, But there's no real reason to believe that's going to come anytime too soon. Ethan, in your own research, have you started developing cultivars or uh, working with particular cultivars that you see as having medical efficacy beyond that of what might be available, uh, I guess, to the recreational consumers or the medical consumers in the US?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, looking towards. Uh, Selective chemovars, chemical varieties that are especially high in cannabogiral, tetrahydrocannabivarin, (THCV), um, on and on and on, and then specific terpenoid profiles that are going to complement uh, the cannabinoid activity. Um, so, one of our one of the focuses of our work is trying to de- de- to develop uh, better chemovars that would be available not just for research, but to consumers. Um, And this is through our, Credo Science is our company, but we work with Breeders Best, uh, which is devoted to supporting the independent cannabis breeder. Um, Certainly there are companies, particularly in Canada, that have their own uh, programs to develop new lines. But um, in this instance, it's a philosophical difference. Uh, We're trying to support You know, it might be the old hippie who's uh, been in the Emerald Triangle um, uh, developing uh, better forms of cannabis over the last 30 years. Um, And maybe um, he's got something that he'd like to get out there and make available to patients in need. Um, But the same could apply to so called recreational or adult use cannabis. Our motto is uh, we want to make cannabis safer and better, but that's really a broad um, uh, approach to things that encompasses a lot of different endeavors. Yeah, but we're really serious about it.
1: And to that end, I mean, there are so much proliferation of genetics, but because it's been in the legacy market, uh, those have not been widely distributed into the legitimate side of the industry. And so what you're hopeful of, what you believe is actually likely, is that some of these breeders, some of these growers do hold these unique chemovars and that if they're willing to share we could broaden the efficacy of these chemovars by distributing them to people in general around the world. Sure. Are you looking for any chemovars in particular? When you and I talked, uh, there is a predominancy you mentioned of high mercine uh chemovars. Right. And you were looking at things that might be a little bit different. What what particularly would you be looking for if our listeners, uh, you know, happen to have something in their stable of genetics?
2: Uh, so very quickly, it would be anything that's uh, really predominant in a uh, cannabinoid beyond THC and CBD. On the terpenoid front, the problem with myrcene is the degree of sedation that it produces. Um, so in this instance, we're really more interested in some of the more therapeutic terpenoids that really contribute either to the therapeutic properties of cannabis or limit THC-associated side effects. So this would include limonene, great for mood elevation. Uh, it would include linalool, which is an anti-anxiety agent. It would include caryophyllene, which is uh, a pain reliever and anti-inflammatory. You know, lots of good, oh, alpha-pinene, of course, uh, which is uh, very good for a clear head, um, reducing or eliminating the short-term memory impairment associated with THC. Uh, So this would be a few examples. Um, Certainly these exist. I would also emphasize that selective breeding through conventional techniques gets you there. This isn't anything that requires uh, making in a vat with yeast or yeah. genetic modification. Um, actually, we're interested in, in avoiding those approaches. Uh, the genome of the cannabis plant is so plastic that it can do anything uh, if you invest the right amount of time, money, and effort into the endeavor.
1: Absolutely. And when we talk about plastic or plasticity, we mean that the environment can exert a huge amount of variability on the outcome, the expression of those genes. So what you're referring to is a problem that we see throughout the industry, which is there's very little consistency from product to product. And that's the same from one batch of flour to another, uh, and even more pronounced potentially in Batches of uh, cannabis 2.0 products or value-added products such as your tincture salves. How are we going to get to a level of consistency uh, that would be good or safe for your average consumer? And then, is that different than what, if ever, the FDA would demand?
2: Um, yeah, well, you know, it's it's a complex issue, but this is all attainable. Um, basically, how GW did it was um, starting off with a group of closely related plants that had an extremely similar profile. Um, Sativex is a combination of a high THC chemovar and a high CBD chemovar. But um, to do this on a pharmaceutical level, you really have to use vegetative propagation or clones. So using genetically identical plants and their approach was very systematic. These were rooted, they were put out on the floor, 77 days later, not 76, not 78, they were harvested and um, pooled and extracted. But through this, there was a tremendous amount of standardization uh, and uniformity that was produced to pharmaceutical standards. So that has been done, it can be done again. But to the point that you made earlier, you start off with genetics. This plant has the genetic capability to be high in certain cannabinoids and terpenoids. But yes, it is influenced by environment. So that's gotta be consistent too. And that is why for the pharmaceutical market, you're better off in a greenhouse or uh, in um, an indoor uh, setting rather than outdoors, too many variables uh, what's in the soil? Um, is the smoke going to blow in? Is there going to be a hailstorm that ruins the crop? you know it's a hard thing to, to deal with but um, you know with consistent soil on consistent environmental parameters and consistent genetics you you should have a very consistent result. So again, this is not for everyone. Uh, There are always people that are going to prefer to grow their own, have their own seeds, um, keep the ones that they appreciate the most when they grow out. But, you know, again, if we're talking pharmaceutical development, it's got to be just so.
1: Understood, Dr. Russo. And and again, you know, through the control and reproduction of these very tightly reproduced environments, you minimize the variability expressed by the plant and ultimately lead to a more consistent product, whether it's used... Uh, as a dried flower mass or whether it's then goes through an extraction process. Now, extraction is something that you have done a lot of work into. And I understand even have developed some very interesting and new technology, which maybe you can share just a little bit about with our listeners.
2: Sure. Well, I'm going to speak in general terms, uh, because we have a a pending patent application. Um, But Uh, What we aim to do is solve a current problem, which is that the current market assumes that any cannabis material is going to be smoked or vaporized. So this means that it's dried and cured first. We know, have known for 30 years from prior work, that when you dry and cure cannabis, you've immediately eliminated about 50% of the monoterpenoid content. And that may make it more smokable, uh, but it's going to certainly detract from the medical potential uh, of the material, if you believe, as I do, in the entourage effect and terpenoid cannabinoid synergy. So let's assume for the moment that I'm correct. How would you um, avoid uh, drying and curing? Well, first, not do it. But we've developed a solventless uh, technique that nicely preserves and concentrates um, the cannabis material, retaining the proportions that are present in the fresh plant. Um, and I'm afraid I can't go into the details of how we did it, but it's extremely clean and would present the possibility of onward uh, further manipulation through whatever kind of extraction someone would would want to do. And it leaves material which can further be processed if if people are so inclined. Uh, So although uh, we end up with a small percentage of the original mass, um, nothing is lost really at all, um, because Again, you can get it in the high quality extract or you can get it in the lower quality
1: um, material that remains. Ethan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do have one question to follow up for the listeners. Sure. Is this a technique that is commercially viable? And by that, I mean there are some techniques that make sense to isolate a compound that can be done in a laboratory. And for the purpose of science, it's a great achievement. But there's another set of technology that has applications into a broader commercial marketplace. And is the technology you developed falling into the former or latter category?
2: Well, I think it's practical. It's not uh, the simplest thing to do. It takes a little time, but uh, it's not uh, an insurmountable challenge to do. Uh, It's not technically uh, that difficult at all. Um, so, yeah, we hope that it's novel enough that uh, the it will be blessed by the U.S. Patent Office, but uh, we'll see. Um, yeah, I think it's quite viable, and it's going to be a niche market. The material um, at the end likely would have two possible uses. One would be a pharmaceutical market where a high degree of purity and consistency is necessary. Uh, and the other would be the very high
1: end. Let's say the cannabis connoisseur, um, right? Absolutely, and uh, I, I'm eager to see where your technology leads when it is a little bit more uh, open book on the uh, in the industry. But v- congratulations, that's wonderful, and that technology was developed with your company Credo, correct? correct? Excellent. So uh, we can give some information on how to find out more at the end of the broadcast, but I'm sure there will be lots of inquiries, Ethan, lots of inquiries. You continue to mention terpenoids, different terpene uh, compounds. And just recently, I believe that you uh, are part of a company called Terpology. And uh, they have released a new set of products, fairly unique offerings. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Terpology and, and what led to your endorsement of these product set?
2: Sure, so Terpology is a line of products developed by the company True Terpenes. Uh, they're based in Portland, Oregon and in Texas. Um, so I've known the folks involved for several years. Um, And uh, this came about originally because uh, wanting to do research and looking for sources of terpenoids, um, there really weren't good ones uh, years back. Uh, You had the chemical houses, um, but their material was made from petroleum distillates. It wasn't pure. Um, you, You didn't know what was in the other 5%, and it really was never designed for human use. So along came true terpenes, and they were doing botanically-derived material. Um, Part of the problem with terpenoids is they come in different uh, stereoisomers. So uh, for those who aren't chemists, and I'm certainly not, but that means they look a little different in three-dimensional space. But that makes all the difference. You know, if it's a right-handed molecule or a left-handed molecule, it may smell, taste different uh, and have different pharmacological effects. One will fit on a certain receptor where the other one doesn't. So, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, if
2: you're trying to analyze what the terpenoids in cannabis, you need things that look the same, the right stereoisomers. So it started there. Um, but uh, the company is also making a movement in the hemp-derived uh, terpenes. And ultimately, I think this is going to be important. Um, for example, in New York State, which is in the process of legalizing, um, there's a requirement uh, that anything added to a cannabis preparation be from cannabis. Um, but with the terpology uh, mixtures, what we were doing or... Basically, I wanted to create certain recipes um, that we hoped would uh, provide certain consistent effects. Um, This was based on my knowledge of aromatherapy. Um, When I go to formulate, uh, I go to the books, uh, see which essential oils from what plants uh, have been recommended for that condition, whether it be to sleep, relax. Um, uh, deal with anxiety, uh, greater alertness, whatever it is, Um, and looking for common threads. And quickly it becomes apparent that, gee, you know, this particular terpenoid is appearing in all five of these that aromatherapists recommend. Um, So it's easy then um, uh, to look into the pharmacology. Is there a rational basis for it? And at the same time, you want to eliminate the ones that might have associated toxicity or aren't good to inhale. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, basically looking for common threads, understanding the pharmacology, understanding the toxicology, and then coming up with combinations uh, that would make sense for the particular mood
1: desired, um, that kind of thing. That's fascinating, uh, Ethan. It really is. And you mentioned you you talked about exogenous and endogenous terpenes, which uh, are derived from the species and genus of the plant that you're working with, which is, uh, I guess, what the legislation in New York is aimed at. Or if you wanted limonene, you can get it from any other citrus plant, extract sure. it botanically and concentrate it. Is there a benefit to using those uh, endogenous uh, derived Compounds when you formulate. I mean, is New York onto the right track? Would you say?
2: Well, I, I think it's an important trend. Is it absolutely necessary in terms of uh, the effects? Maybe not. Um, but you know, sometimes uh, what California does becomes what the nation does. In this instance, I think that many states may follow New York with this kind of policy. And there is an advantage uh, to the extent that at least uh, if it's made properly, uh, you're going to be avoid avoid the situation of having harmful additives. Um, probably everyone's aware of the by I'm sorry, lipoid pneumonia outbreak uh, that led to a few deaths and a lot of uh, lung damage. Um, And this was uh, because of uh, vitamin E acetate uh, as an additive to vape pens. Now, vitamin E acetate is a form of vitamin E. If you take it orally, there's not a problem. But it was never designed uh, to be inhaled, particularly after heating. And um, it's a huge problem. Um, It is better, ideally, that anything that goes into a vape pen came from the plant. Uh, directly. Even so, vape pens have their own issues. Um, But again, part of our mission to make cannabis safer and better, um, we're all about standards and safety. Um, And uh, part of this would include uh,
1: close attention to what's in the material. And that's one of the pitfalls of not having a federal policy that really matches the individual state policies, because they're not putting in place a guideline of standards. For example, in most industries, there's a set of ISO procedures, ISO procedures that list out the proper processes and that this is all agreed upon. So, for example, in the cannabis industry, there could be an overarching a uh, plan of how for example HPLC is used to test for cannabinoid levels but because each lab is doing it individually they can actually vary their results based on the different testing techniques used and because there's no standardization it's hard for a consumer or a patient to really make heads or tails of some of that information do you see an adoption to a more standardized process coming in the near future
2: Perhaps. I mean, ideally, I think this would come uh, from within the industry. But um, I'm a realist. Uh, It is the case that people aren't going to do anything that uh, causes them to to expend money unless they're required to do it. Um, I mean, an example would be some years ago with colleagues, uh, we did uh, analyses of Um, cannabis in the Washington state legal market and found tremendous uh, degrees of contamination with pesticides. Now, I was naive enough to think that when this was published, there would be a move by the legislature to do something about it and make testing for pesticides mandatory. But that's not what happened. It was an option, and now you don't get it unless you ask for it and pay extra for it. Um, so that was very disappointing. Um, and the same would apply to other aspects of the business, unless it's a requirement and any requirement should be backed up by safety concerns or scientific, scientific necessity. Um, but while I'm at it, I might as well say um, I think every consumer deserves at the point of sale. Uh, To know not only how much THC and CBD is in the material, but a full terpenoid profile and to know that it is free from pesticides, heavy metals, uh, bacterial or fungal contamination, etc. That should be part of the bargain. Um, Now, that may ultimately mean that the state gets a little less tax revenue, but
1: um, (laughs) that's okay with me too. I understand, and while we do see some states that mandate and require all of those tests, we also have other states that up until even a few months ago didn't require any testing of their cannabis products, which to me is abhorrent and completely understandable. It just makes no sense how you could have a medical program and then not require any type of analysis or testing. Uh, But no one ever said the government is sensible or rational. So we'll have to bide our time. Dr. Russo, there is currently a bit of a hot button issue going around a uh, compound called Delta-8. Can you maybe tell us about Delta-8 and enlighten us on what that controversy might be or why it's become an issue now? Sure, little background. Uh, so uh, people often say that it's not a
2: natural component of cannabis, well, it is. It is uh, is an isomer of delta-9 THC, Um, so it's just a little bit different positioning of the molecule. Um, It is similar to THC as best we know, uh, meaning that it's a partial agonist at the CB1 receptor, but uh, you will hear that it's less potent than delta-9, but that really hasn't been tested head-to-head in humans. I'm hoping that my colleague Ryan Vondre at Johns Hopkins will uh, get his grant and uh, initiate the studies to show this. But um, what we found out recently is that in the best labs, you can separate Delta-9 and Delta-8 and see that it is a natural component of cannabis. It is more stable than Delta-9. But the problem comes about that the vast majority of the Delta-8 that's available commercially in the US now is being transmogrified, if you will, uh, from CBD, from hemp crops. And uh, I'm sorry to say, this isn't what I want. This is the way it is. All of this is illegal under federal law. Every bit of it, because first of all, uh, again, you're allowed... Uh, well, CBD is illegal under federal law unless it's in epi um, But the fact is that this is extracted um, and produced uh, synthetically, which is a violation of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Uh, additionally, it clearly is psychoactive. Um, and as an analog of Delta-9-THC, uh, there's a law, uh, federal law, again, that says if you're making something artificially uh, that's closely related to something that's already illegal in Schedule 1, then it's Schedule 1 also. Uh, but Delta not, Delta 8 is clearly Schedule 1 um, as it is. So people should have no illusions. And maybe at this point, people don't mind that they're doing something that's federally
1: illegal. Uh, but... Um, they should be aware that it is. Um, Definitely, and the loophole seems to be closing as you know, 11 states have enacted legislation, five more have active legislation pending. And I think that if you will, the jig is up. It was an interesting idea of applying a less regulated chemical <laughs> to a uh, hemp flower. What I've seen most popular is that they're spraying it back on hemp flour for a legal way of providing a psychotropic effect, uh, and legal being quite a gray area in and of itself, as you just was, described. We, yeah, we call that tortured legal logic. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, faulty, I'm afraid. It really is. Now, are there any health risks associated with Delta-8 that people should be aware of or just really to know more about the manufacturing process and the provider of the products they consume yeah
2: i couldn't vouch for any of the products without knowing the technique that it's gone through but you know it had to be made in a lab and what kind of quality control was there what kind of contaminants would there be uh again dosing if you have enough delta eight it's it potentially could cause any of the problems that delta-9 does uh, in terms of anxiety, panic attacks, uh, orthostatic hypotension, uh, even toxic psychosis. Now, I haven't heard of that happening to any great degree, uh, but certainly there's a potential. It clearly is a partial agonist of the CB1 receptor, and at a high enough dose, any of these things could happen.
1: Well, what I would love to see is an overarching policy that supported safe access to cannabis and cannabis derived products. You know, again, that is in time, hopefully, to come and might more likely come internally from the industry putting it forth than from the federal government making sweeping regulatory changes. Uh, but with that in mind, how do you envision the industry evolving? You had mentioned yeast fermentation as a method of producing cannabinoids uh, at a high level. Where do you see the industry going in, say, the next five years?
2: Uh, it's all of the above. You know, basically, the three or four echelons of uh, cannabinoid activity, but the traditional ones would be herbal cannabis. Uh, mm-hmm. the second would be uh, supplements, hopefully with some degree of quality control. And third is pharmaceutical development. Now, the mistake that I think many people make is thinking that one echelon of the market could dominate or eliminate the others. This has never happened. It never will happen. But we have a fourth echelon now, which is synthetically derived or yeast produced uh, cannabinoids. And again, I think the science is fascinating. I'm no Luddite. But it's never going to do what the cannabis plant can do, either in terms of yield or the panoply of different ingredients and the entourage of effects that they produce. Uh, So I stand firm on that. I've had opportunities to go in the other direction, but it's simply not of philosophical interest to me.
1: I definitely see the limitation of an isolate product, a single chemical compound, as opposed to this incredible wealth, a cornucopia of phytometabolites that cannabis provides. And while you might be able to get high off THC produced from yeast, it's not gonna ever provide the benefits or the experience of a well-rounded uh, entourage-based natural product. Um, now that said, I also see a race to the bottom and people are always looking for a lower cost way of producing everything. You know, the old adage that there's always someone willing to do it for a penny less and a little bit worse. Um, I don't want that to be where the industry goes. Do you think that biofermentation, whether it's yeast based or whether they're using bacteria like E. coli, do you think that will foster or even expedite that race to the bottom?
2: I could. And again, it really depends on, um, well, what the consumer wants um, and uh, what safety factors we see involved. Um, again, I know the direction in which I want to, to head. Uh, and it's just not down that same road.
1: Absolutely. I I personally am a huge fan of flour and all of its diversity in both color and aroma and chemical properties, and I hope that we never get to a point where it's just produced in a lab. You know, my concern is there's a lot of uh, opinions, a lot of feelings about these derived products, but in my experience, people's memories are short and their pockets get light, and, uh, you know, it makes it possible, even with a large amount of, uh, I guess, opposition to these products, if they're cheaper and the market pushes them, it could have a significant penetration. And, you know, whether that's an efficacy issue, a safety issue, it's not necessarily where I would prefer the industry to go. Uh, and I don't know your opinion there, but um, would be interested to hear. Uh,
2: yeah, you know I there are many arguments on both sides. Uh, I, I think one the industry might have is, oh, you can't have this mixture because cannabis tastes lousy. Well, some do, and some don't. Um uh, twenty years ago, I remember having a cannabis flavored soda in Switzerland, and it was delicious. And there are many people that like the taste if it's doctored up sufficiently. Um, so again, um, it's all a matter of what's in there. And if you're, you have quality control on the ingredients, again, uh, you can have the effect and the flavor that you want. Um, keep in mind the terpenoids are flavor ingredients. Most are generally recognized as safe. Uh, you're exposed to these every day in different forms.
1: You know, you bring up the quality control, and I know it's something that is important to you. Is there an issue with the quality control right now? I mean, are individual companies doing a good enough job of, I guess, self policing in the absence of overarching regulations? Uh, again, it is going to run the range from
2: uh, ethical, uh, done properly, to the really shoddy and unreliable. Um, So, boy, until I would look closely on techniques and results, I I wouldn't vouch for anything.
1: I completely understand. Uh, Dr. Russo, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And I'm sure all of the listeners have a lot more questions. If they would like to get in touch with you, how might they go about that?
2: Uh, Well, they could email me at ethanrusso at comcast.net. Also, all my uh, articles are available at EthanRusso.org. If they would hit the library tab, there are a number of pages on there. And um, because it's my personal website, they can use those without copyright limitations.
1: Thank you for that free access to literature. We appreciate both being uh, informed and then being able to share that that science with everyone else. Dr. Russo, again, thank you so much for joining me today. And before I let you go, I have to ask a question that's completely off topic. But I saw a wall of guitars behind you, a row of axes. Please tell me about that. I just have to say (laughs) it surprised me. Uh, Well, uh, what what you're seeing there and uh,
2: other people don't have the benefit of seeing is what I call Rickenbacker row. Uh, Rickenbackers, for those who don't know, are American-made guitars, handmade. Um, famous uh, use by the Beatles and the Birds, Mm -hmm. and more recently by members of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, But I have a particular penchant for these. Uh, I have several. Um, They're all different um, Mm -hmm. and desirable in their own way. But uh, yeah, one of my pastimes is playing guitar, and uh, I'm probably not that good, but uh, that's my uh, psychotherapy.
1: It is a beautiful collection, and I'm thrilled to learn a little bit more about you that the public might not know. So thank you again for joining us today, for sharing all of this wonderful information, your insights, and for providing our listeners some really new uh, and different uh, opinions. We really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Russo, and thank you so much for joining me and the future growth audience here on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. We love to hear from our audience. Have a great idea for a guest or a topic you'd like us to cover? Thoughts you want to share? Reach out to media at agrify.com. Don't forget to stay connected with Agrify at Agrify Corp on all platforms and by visiting us at www.agrify.com. See you next time for another episode of The Future of Growth.